Uh, so if you would uh, switch over to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we've been in the book of Ephesians for uh, quite some time now, and we're going to focus over the next uh, eight weeks or so on the armor of God, this little section at the end of Ephesians, um, and we're going to do like a mini-series here on the armor of God, walking through these things, and today will be kind of an overview of that. Um, well, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a, a book that um, was, uh, has been updated, but was written in the 1500s, uh, kind of tracing through uh, the martyrs of the early church up until that time. And in that book, uh, there is a description of uh, the Theban Legion. This is a group of 6,600, a legion of soldiers from Egypt who had become Christians. They were Coptic Christians in Egypt uh, around, in the 3rd century. And these, this, basically this whole legion had become Christians, and they were called upon by the emperor to put down a rebellion in the Alps. So they traveled uh, over the Swiss Alps and put down this rebellion. They obeyed their emperor and did so. And then Emperor uh, Max, Maximian wanted them to uh, take an oath of allegiance to him, which was really like a, a sacrifice, which was signifying the divine nature of the emperor. And then he called on them not only to take this oath, but then to uh, help him in killing the rest of the Christians in that area in which they had put down this rebellion. Well, the leader refused to do so, and he refused, uh, he said, we simply can't do this. This would violate our primary oath to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this day, it wasn't like, hey, I refused a command from the commander-in-chief, and therefore, you know, I get court-martialed and kicked out of the military. Like, no, you would face death. The emperor had absolute sway. And so, uh, the, this commander refused, and uh, the emperor said, all right, we're going to, th- uh, he issued a threat of killing every tenth man in the legion. They still did not take the oath of allegiance, and so they killed every tenth man. 660 men were killed. They offered a second warning, and they continued to refuse, and so they killed another 660 men. And uh, Martarius, the commander, uh, said this to the emperor. He said, you commanded us to execute Christians. Behold, we are such. We confess God the Father, the creator of all things, and his son, Jesus Christ. We have seen our comrades slain with the sword. We do not weep for them, but rather rejoice at their honor. Neither this nor any other provocation has tempted us to revolt. Behold, we have arms in our hands, but we do not resist. Because we would rather die innocent than live by any sin. The emperor killed the entire legion for their disobedience. The bravery of these soldiers in this story showcased a, a different kind of bravery than what we're used to for soldiers. It was not a bravery to fight, but a bravery to die. Why would these battle-hardened, armored, skilled warriors submit to death rather than defend themselves? Well, they were committed to a higher fight. And that's what we're hoping to learn about over the next few weeks, 
is what does it mean for us as believers to be committed to something far greater than anything else in the world, and how will we be equipped to endure anything for the sake of our King? What does it mean for us to be committed with this kind of bravery? And so we're going to look at what Paul keys in on here in this text, looking at what does it look like for a Roman soldier to be armored? And he uses this warfare imagery in order to communicate something to his uh, audience, to the Ephesians that we've been talking about for quite some time now. He's using this warfare imagery to communicate something to them. And what we want to know is, what is that? And how then do we be equipped similarly? So we're going to start this morning in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. All right, so this is a, an odd image for us because we don't typically walk around seeing armored soldiers, right? But this would have been common practice for them to see and to know uh, what an armored Roman soldier looked like. And so Paul is going to continue in this metaphor of this armored soldier. But the question is, what are we getting armored up for? Because passages like this have been used to justify sort of all sorts of things under the guise of spiritual warfare. But what is it exactly that Paul is talking about when he speaks of spiritual warfare? What is it? What, what, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about being armored up for physical battle? Or is there something else? What should we be looking for? Are we looking for spiritual warfare in every situation? What does this actually look like? Well, in order for us to understand the armor of God properly, we need to understand his power properly. And in order for that, we need to know what the right battle is that Paul is speaking of. What's the right means to the end of that battle? What is the right enemy in the midst of that battle? And then finally, what is the right end goal of that battle? And in that, in seeking to understand what's the right battle, what's the right enemy, what's the right means, and what's the right end to that battle, we're going to understand what is it that we need in terms of the power of God for that battle. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at these kind of areas. So first, what is the battle to which Paul is calling us? He says here, right, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. You see, Paul is saying here that we are in a spiritual and not an earthly battle. We are in a fundamentally spiritual battle and not an earthly battle. So the wrong battle for us to fight 
would be an earthly battle. So obviously, right, something in church history like the Crusades, in which Christians armored themselves to go to physical battle for the honor of the Lord, would be wrong and a wrong interpretation of this, right? Because Paul very clearly says, no, 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 we are not fighting against flesh and blood, right? The Theban Legion, the reason in which they did not pick up the arms that they had to defend themselves is they said, we're not fighting this kind of battle. We're not fighting a earthly battle. However, there are other ways, right? Maybe Crusades is an obvious example, but there are other ways in which we actually seek a wrong battle. Here in our country, in America, we often look at some culture wars that we want to win in order to accomplish something in the world. A political battle is fundamentally an earthly battle. If we could just get the right person into office, the church could thrive. Now, that's not to say that Culture and politics are not important, nor to say that there aren't spiritual battles happening in those places, for sure. But the question for us is, fundamentally, is that the battle that God has called us to? Is that the battle that God has called us to? The other wrong battle would be to baptize physical wars, uh, real earthly wars, as a part of God's agenda. Right? Paul's use of war imagery here is not in order to, to say uh, that we are okay in a militaristic society to continue to support physical violence. Right? That's not what Paul is saying in the midst of this. That's not why he's using a warfare analogy. The real battle, he says, is a spiritual one against Satan, against all strategies of the devil against all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now that means that the battle fundamentally is spiritual, and that means it's against ourselves, against, uh, uh, for the church in holiness, in pursuing what it means for us to understand the gospel, and in the world through evangelism and discipleship and the living out of kingdom ethics. Fundamentally, that is where our battle lies, not in earthly means as an earthly end. So if our battle is fundamentally spiritual, then what is the enemy of that battle? What is the enemy of that battle? Where will we see ourselves fighting against something. Only when we see the enemy rightly will we understand whether or not we're fighting a spiritual battle. We see lots of wrong enemies in our battle. Our enemy is not non-Christians, people who don't know Jesus. Our enemy is not communism or socialism or liberals or conservatives or other Christians or people you don't like. Fundamentally, when we get the enemy wrong is when we identify the enemy as people. He says the enemy is not flesh and blood. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. But so often we are tempted to see the enemy as other people. 
So often we are tempted to understand that our enemy is not against unseen things, but against seen things. People who would come against us. People who we simply don't like. And fundamentally, where we get this wrong, this spiritual battle wrong, is when we see people as our enemy. Satan and all the spiritual forces against us are the enemy in which Paul identifies. Now, certainly, that means that Satan and demonic forces use people to accomplish those means, absolutely. But the enemy is not people. The enemy cannot be people. Paul says our battle is against all the strategies of the devil. What are these strategies of the devil? Well, his strategies are the same always. They are accusations, lying, and division. Right? Jesus in John 8 says this, For you are children of, the fa- of your father the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. This is when he's speaking to the religious leaders. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, the strategy of Satan is pretty easily identified. He doesn't have a very complex playbook. And he doesn't need a very complex playbook because he utilizes it pretty well. He lies, he deceives, and he kills. This is his strategy. And Paul says we are fighting against every strategy that he has. And that we are equipped with God's armor in order to fight against all of those strategies and in order to succeed in a spiritual battle against them. Now, if we're to do this well, if we're to fight against this well, we need to understand that there are some errors that it comes to in saying that our battle is spiritual. One of those errors is to attribute every small detail and difficulty of life to Satan and demonic forces. That gives him way too much power, right? Like, if you stubbed your toe on the way to church this morning, that was not Satan trying to get you not to go to church. At least I don't think so, (laughs) right? I guess I can't say authoritatively, but it seems that that's not really his strategy, right? So sometimes we give Satan too much power. We attribute too much to him, right? We are looking for every single thing to be a spiritual battle. And so we are seeking in every single spot to find out where is Satan and what is he doing? What demonic forces are at work in this particular place? That gives him way too much power. Some of the difficulty of our life is simply because the world is broken. The world is broken because of our sin and it is fundamentally broken everything about the world. So sometimes the difficulty you face is not because of your sin individually, not because Satan is after you, but simply because the world is broken and not the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes we're seeking for an answer to every little detail when that is not given to us. Sometimes the suffering we face is because of the sin of other people. Other people sin against us, and that's what we are facing. And so we don't need to attribute every little detail of that to Satan. And sometimes it's the sin of myself. 
Sometimes I'm simply facing the consequences of my own sin, my own disobedience to the Lord, right? God gives us his law because he's gracious to us and wants us to experience thriving. And so he gives us his law in order for us to live in a way that that makes sense of the reality of our world and of the way in which he's created us. And sometimes there are real spiritual forces at hand. It's hard to determine authoritatively. Certainly there are some spiritual forces behind the actions of other people, but we need to be careful not to attribute too much to demonic forces. The other error is on the opposite side, and that is attributing too little to Satan and demonic forces. Satan's real. Demonic forces are real. Now, they are not equal with God's power. They're not ultimate. It's not this like uh, heaven and hell uh, struggle against each other with equal and opposing forces. No, certainly not. That's not the picture we get of the scriptures. Satan has very limited power. God is sovereign over all things. God has power over Satan. God is king. He is ruler. However, there is very real power. Now, we will see in a moment the way in which the demonic forces of the world have been disarmed by Jesus, but we will use the wrong means in our battle when we think that Satan is too powerful. We'll rely on some sort of superstitious or magical type thing to get out of it. But we will also rely on the wrong means when we don't attribute anything to demonic forces. Because we'll think we can simply solve these with earthly means because we're fighting an earthly battle because there's nothing spiritual happening. Paul would tell us that that's not true. There is very real demonic forces at work, and we don't want to attribute too much to that, all right? So we're going to try and play that balance as we continue in this series, as we walk through all of these different ways in which God is going to equip us with his armor and his power for his glory, all right? Each of these things that we are going to be equipped with that Paul talks about are to address the strategies of Satan. And so we're going to walk through those things and try to understand what that spiritual battle is and attribute to it rightly what we need to, but not overdo that um, in, in attributing too much to it. So that is the nature of our battle and our enemy, which is not people. Not people. So then, if our enemy is not people, and if our battle is not earthly but spiritual, what then are the means of our battle? How do we fight this battle? Well, if we are to understand that our enemy is not people, right, but is these spiritual means, then our, 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 our spiritual enemies, then our means must be spiritual and in line with what Jesus would call us to. Meaning the wrong means for this battle are politics, force, just general cruelty and nastiness, lying, money. All of the things that we sometimes use to try to accomplish the things of God. Sometimes people begin to use these things subtly to accomplish the means of God because we're fundamentally misunderstanding what our battle is. 
The right means of our battle is the gospel. The work of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, and our testimony to it, and ultimately, our death. Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 12 say this. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan, the accuser, has been thrown down. And they, right, brothers and sisters, have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who live in the heavens, rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. You see, in the book of Revelation, it showcases to us, and and, and the book of Revelation is showing uh, a series of, it's really like seven pictures of the end of the world, right? So it showcases these different vignettes of the end of the world. So it's, it's really uh, a lot of metaphor, right? So we're not talking about literal images usually in the book of Revelation. But what he's saying here is he's showcasing, John is seeing the strategy for the Lord in defeating his enemies. You see what it is? It's the gospel of Jesus. That they defeated the enemy by the blood of the lamb and their testimony to it because they love not their lives even unto death. You see, the Thaban legion was able to defeat a spiritual enemy by submitting to an earthly death. Because they said, our battle is not against you, Caesar. Our battle is not against you, but against Satan who has who has deceived you into killing God's people. And therefore, we will testify to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross who has disarmed Satan. And we will submit even unto death because nothing, not even death, can take what God has given us. Not even death can take what God has given us. You see, the means of our battle is what Jesus has done in us and what Jesus is doing through us by our commitment to love him more than our very lives. Now, if we're going to do that, we need some help. We need some armor. It's what Paul is going to give us. Paul is going to talk about the ways in which we can be armored for that kind of battle. So we've looked at the nature of our battle, which is spiritual, not earthly. The enemy of our battle, which is not people, but Satan and all the unseen rulers and authorities. We've looked at the means of our battle, which is the gospel and our testimony. But what's the end goal of our battle? What's the end goal of this battle? What does Paul envision for the church in Ephesus? What does he envision their battle ending like? Well, normally when you enter a battle, your goal is to win, right? Your goal is to win. Let me submit to you in this spiritual battle, our goal is to lose. 
in order to win. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 say this. And remember, we looked at this last week. Colossians and Ephesians were both delivered at the same time, right? With Onesimus and uh, Tychicus. They were delivered at the same time. Paul's writing these at the same time. There's a lot of similar themes in them. But in Colossians 2, it says this. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. This is the part I want to key in on. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now, we say things like this all the time, right? That we conquer by the blood of the lamb or that we are victorious by the cross. Do you understand the profound irony of that statement? He publicly shamed the rulers and authorities by what? By a cross, an instrument of public humiliation and shame. Jesus submitting himself to a death on a cross by losing, he triumphed. You see, in the midst of his weakest moment, the weakness of God is stronger than anything else. His weakest moment, Satan's high point, killing the Son of God, disarmed him completely. Now, why did it disarm him completely? Because it stripped everything away from his ability to do any damage? No. But what does Satan really do? What does Revelation say? He's the accuser. He accuses. Satan whispers to us, you know, God really doesn't love you. Because remember that thing you did yesterday? Don't you remember that thought you had while praying? Who do you think you are? Satan accuses. But what was taken away? The record of the charges against us was nailed to the cross. Satan loses all power. He loses all power. I think it's Martin Luther, I'm going to paraphrase, but he says, when, when Satan accuses you of sin, you ought to say, yeah, what of it? Of course I'm a sinner. But I believe in one who died for my sin. And where he is, I will be also. The reality is that Jesus has conquered Satan. He has disarmed all the spiritual forces in the world because there is nothing he can do against you. He cannot accuse you of any sin because you are covered in the blood of the Lamb. He cannot accuse you of anything that you have done wrong against the Lord because you have been forgiven. He cannot ultimately throw in your face that God will come in his wrath against your sin because God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus. So, the ultimate threat of death and entering into the judgment of God is gone. What more can you do to us? There's literally nothing you can take away. You can take away my life. I'll enter into the glory of Jesus. I get Jesus' presence. 
I get welcomed home as a son, victorious. If you're taking away my life, can't take away anything, then take away my stuff. Doesn't matter. That stuff is going to go away anyway. Take away my reputation. Take away my job. Take away whatever you want. It doesn't matter because Jesus has died for my sins and has welcomed me home and the God of the universe delights to sing over me. This is the strength of the early church. This is the strength of the early church that we must recapture. It was not the strength of the early church that was when Constantine converted to Christianity and made Christianity legal. Certainly that gave us great advantages, right? It allowed for things like the Council of Nicaea to meet and all sorts of glorious things to happen. And yet that was not the strength of the early church. The strength of the early church was you can't do anything to us. The more you persecute and kill, the more the church grows. Story after story of martyrs going to the Colosseum to be killed and the crowd and soldiers and others joining Christians eventually because they witnessed the way in which Christians died. They had never witnessed anything like it. They had never witnessed such bravery in the face of such persecution, such love in the face of hatred. This is the victory of Jesus and the context for our spiritual battle is that Jesus has disarmed all the heavenly authorities in the unseen world. All the evil forces against us have been completely disarmed. This is the strength we must recapture. If Satan is defeated, if death can do nothing to us, if our treasure is in Christ and we worship him and not the things of this world, literally no one can do anything to us. This is the power that we need. This is the strength that we need. So ultimately, what is our power? Well, it's certainly not going to be earthly, worldly strength. It's not going to be by being more uh, more fierce. It's not going to be by winning. It's not going to be by winning any culture war or any political battle. It is not the strength of money that we need or political connections or the American military or guns or physical power. It's not the strength of personality or charisma that we need. It's not just that we need better personalities in the church. We need better and more uh, more capable celebrities. Right? It's not when celebrities are converted to Christ that will give us victory in the world. It's not business savvy that we need. No, it is the strength of the martyrs that we need. It is the strength of Perpetua and Felicitas and Blandina, women who were martyred by the Romans in the third century in North Africa. It's the strength of Jim Elliott, a martyr in the 1950s in Ecuador. It's the strength of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a martyr in this country. The strength of Terry Tumba, martyred by Boko Haram in his home in Nigeria in 2014. It's the strength of the 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt who were murdered by ISIS in 2015. It's the strength of Pastor Han Chung Raoul, 
a Chinese citizen of Korean ancestry whose ministry along the Chinese and North Korean border got him killed in 2016. It's the strength of the Theban Legion. It's the strength of Paul who wrote this letter who was beheaded probably by a Roman soldier wearing the very armor that he describes. It's the strength of Christ Jesus who when he was reviled did not revile in return. The strength of Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame. It's the strength of God granted to all of them by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that you have to love in the face of death. To love in the face of losing. To lose the world, in fact, to gain Christ. That same strength is available to all who would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, put on all of God's armor to have the strength to love and to endure and defeat all the forces of darkness, not by winning, but by losing. Revelation 12, again, just to hear it one more time. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens. Let's pray together. Father God, over these next weeks as we look at what it means to be equipped with your armor, Lord God, as we look at what it means for us to love in the face of difficulty, God, would you strengthen us by your Holy Spirit that we would be equipped for all the work that you have for us. Lord, that we would love in the face of hate, that we would not love our lives even unto death, Lord, that we would love you instead. That we would willingly give up our things the treasures of this world so that we can gain you, Christ. And God, that you would triumph over all the evil forces at work so that you would call all those trapped by them to yourself. God, would you help us to love people, not see them as enemies, but see them as those who need your love and your care. Jesus, would you be honored in that and equip us with your strength, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.